Friends, your new pastor, Alex Stark. Awesome. Wow. Check, check. How good. Thanks, Montana. That's wonderful. This is really surreal. And um, if you were to come up and touch me on the shoulder, give me a hug, you'd know this isn't a holograph. I'm really here, Kat's really here. We were Zoomed in via live stream last week, hands to the team for that, organizing that. Um, it's just so, so surreal to be here, uh, to step in, to get to know you, to share life with you, to see what God does in our midst, and mostly just to spectate, right? <laughs> um, to spectate what God does. There's a line from a famous novel that's always struck me, and I wonder if you know the line. It's from Charles Dickens' The Tale of Two Cities. And it begins and it says, it was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. And he goes on and he says, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the season of light, it was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope, it was the winter of despair. And what's always struck me about this opening to a book is that it builds tension. You're asking, who's talking here? What's good, what's bad? Why are they able to witness it both? It builds tension, and I love tension because tension, tension is what propels the biblical story forward. Tension is right through the Scriptures. The story of the Bible is the story of a good God with a redeemed people, pushing back darkness both in their hearts and in the heavenly realms. That's the story of the Bible. It's a fight between good and evil. It's the story of God's kingdom of light, breaking into the kingdom of darkness and pushing across that darkness. It's God's kingdom. God's kingdom is the one in which humans flourish, in which shalom is felt, wholeness, harmony between us and creation, us and one another, us and God, and us, interestingly, and ourselves. It's shalom, it's wholeness, it's flourishing. It's where people have a home. It's where, where orphans are adopted. That's God's kingdom. And the kingdom of darkness, by contrast, it's marked by death and decay and suffering, and sin. And if you've lived 10 seconds in this life, you'll know the kingdom of darkness. Yeah. Breaks into our worlds, breaks into our bodies, yeah. breaks into our relationships. That's the tension that the Scriptures talk about. It's a story of tension. It's a cosmic battle. It's a battle between good and evil. And all of us, for better or worse, whether you're a human, whether you identify as Christian, whatever your story, we're caught up in the battle. All of us. And Paul today is going to tell us how to navigate it, to navigate spiritual warfare. Now, I'm going to be real. I, I was not so stoked when I found out that the first sermon I was preaching here in this family was on spiritual warfare. It's going to be good, yeah. But I think it's testament to the fact that this is one of the beauties of going through a biblical series together. No preacher gets to preach on their hobby horse right? You've got to follow where the text leads. You've got to raise the questions that Scripture raises, and you've got to be shaped by the way that the text wants to shape us, and that's what God does. Before I begin, I want to acknowledge that when I say the phrase spiritual warfare, heaps of us are already checking out. Not heaps of us, some of us, let me say that. For some of us, we're really skeptical. 
uh, we want to say that spiritual things, they're sort of a thing of the past. It's what the primitive old people in the ancient world would have thought of. It's simple, it's primitive. And we're beyond that. We live in the secular Western world. We think that everything that's real, to be determined if it's real, for us to know it's real, we need to be able to see it, touch it, taste it, smell it, test it. That's how we think about what's true in this world. And so we hear the word spiritual warfare and we're like, look, man, I'm just too skeptical. You might have just walked off the street today, you might be a non-Christian, you might have any kind of background, and you might think, I just can't entertain this possibility. All I want to say there is me too. I didn't grow up in a Christian home, you'll hear my story as time goes on, but I didn't grow up in a Christian home, I didn't have any framework for things that existed outside the material world. When I was 15, God radically interrupted my life, and I've been a Jesus follower ever since. And being part, part of being a Jesus follower means you grow to get accustomed to these ideas contained in the biblical story. Not just the ideas, but the realities themselves. So I want to say me too, but that doesn't need to be the end of your skeptical story. Others of you, when you hear the phrase spiritual warfare, you're getting way too excited. (laughs) I thought there'd be that reaction. You might not know who you are, but your friends do. And your family definitely does. You love this topic. You're particularly infatuated with terms like authority, which is good. Sometimes you might let that devolve into thinking that in Jesus' name is like a wizardry spell that we put on the end of prayers. We do this, right? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with it. Jesus' name is powerful. But you get a bit too excited when when we talk about spiritual warfare. Some of us, in short, we're overly excited. Others of us are overly skeptical. And I just want to encourage us before we get into these three points I want to make that with some words from C.S. Lewis, they'll be on the screen. He wrote a book called The Screw Tape Letters, and the premise of the book is that there's a senior demon coaching his junior demons in how to uh, co-opt the lives of, essentially, Jesus followers. It's quite a profound meditation. It's, it's imaginative, but it's profound. And in this, he, in this book, he says, says this. He says, there's two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So today we're going to talk about this, and we're going to move through it in three scenes, and those three scenes are this. To navigate spiritual warfare, we need one, to know what we're up against, two, we need to know what the victory that's already been won, and three, we need to follow the king's example. One, what we're up against, two, the victory already won, and three, the king's example. So one, we need to know what we're up against. Paul writes, verse 10, he says these words, finally, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So Paul here, he's contrasting two things. He's contrasting humans, flesh and blood, and he's contrasting powers, principalities, dark forces, and those kinds of things. When Paul says flesh and blood, Jesus actually uses a similar phrase in the Gospels. You know, blessed are you, Simon, Bar- Simon son of Peter, but flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. He says that in the Gospels. It's just a Jewish idiom. It just means human. And so when Paul's saying this, he's actually contrasting evil spiritual forces and humans, period. Human institutions, humans in themselves, humans. And what he's making, the point he's really making is... Um, It's actually quite a profound point. He's saying that there is no room for the word human enemy in the vocabulary of a Christian. I don't know if you know that. 
There's no room in, the Christian, in Christian vocabulary for the phrase human enemy. He's saying, if you were to push a Christian, really push them to articulate what their enemy is, because we don't love talking about it, but if you really push us, we'd say it's the dark forces of evil behind the larger injustices we see in the world. That's what we'd say. And that's what Paul's saying. Our, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against dark forces of evil. And I want to just acknowledge that that kind of sounds like Star Wars-like, you know what I mean? Like, it sounds like I've been reading less of Paul this week, and me and Obi-Wan Kenobi, he's been my like, latest rabbi mentor figure, and we've been spending some time together, and... It mostly sounds like it's something out of a Star Wars film because we've grown up on a steady diet of Hollywood, maybe more so than we've grown up with the Jewish scriptures that Paul grew up with. And it's important to make that point because, bear with me here, if you were to close your eyes, feel free to if you want to, you don't have to, if you were to close your eyes and I was to say the word devil or demon or dark force, I just want to ask, like this is a really casual thought, what would come to your mind? And I'll be honest, for me, it's a, a red figure in his birthday suit He's got a bull's tail, he's got horns, and he's got a pitchfork. And I found out when I was like seven years old that it was Ned Flanders, right, in The Simpsons. <laughs> that's what comes to our mind. Or maybe for you it's like you watch Paranormal Activity or The Exorcist and you're like, ah, that's what the Bible's talking about. Maybe some of you, you grew up on Steady Diet of The Simpsons and South Park, I'd just say me too. We think of, here's the thing, it's, it's biblical language funneled through Hollywood imagery. It's biblical language funneled through Hollywood imagery, and the problem with this is it's so far removed from what the Apostle Paul would have had in his mind when he's writing. See, Paul was an ancient Jew, not a, not a mind-blowing fact. Ancient Jew, and ancient Jews, dark powers, for them, they were the animating forces behind large-scale injustices in the world. That's what dark powers were for ancient Jews. Psalm 82 puts it really helpfully for us. It says this, that God presides in the great assembly, capital G-O-D, God, Yahweh, in the Jewish imagination. He presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods, lowercase g. And he says to them, how long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? And God charges them and says, defend the weak and the fatherless. Uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. The picture is something like this, that Yahweh, the Jewish God, our God. He's the ultimate divine being in the universe. There's no one like Him. He's sovereign. He's creator. He's redeemer. He's everything. But He's not the only divine being in the universe. And some divine beings, they've rebelled against their original mandate. Much like humans. That's Genesis 3. Much like humans, they've rebelled against their original vocation and calling to steward people into the good world that God would have us experience. And those divine beings, in the Jewish mindset, are the beings that animate the evil that we experience, particularly on a large scale. Now, what does this mean? This might be shocking to some of you, because we've heard a lot of things about dark forces in our world, and I want to say a lot of them are legitimate and a lot of them are good, but Paul's talking about something else in this passage, right? What does this mean for us? Well, I think it means that we should be serious about dark powers and dark forces, but we can't be systematic. We should be serious but not systematic. See, the Bible is very serious about dark powers. You get that. You open the page and it's a story of this tension. But the Bible is not a story about the evil powers. It's a story about God and his people. The biblical writers, they think of evil, corruption, sin, brokenness, death, decay, 
as evidence of the dark powers. Large-scale injustices, economic or social oppression or exploitation, where there's racial and ethnic division in the world, where life feels crushing and shalom and human flourishing are far removed, there are the dark powers. And the Bible wants to argue that this isn't simply the result of, of a few naughty individuals. It's the alluring and corrupting and tempting work of the dark powers. So the Bible is very serious about dark powers, but it's not systematic. See, some Christians, they get really stoked about this stuff. Some Christians, they want to map out the family trees of Satan, right? We want to be like, where did he come from? What is he? What's he doing in the world? And the, Bible's, the Bible doesn't answer all those questions. Like, one of the big questions for me, I was a new Christian, I opened up Genesis, first page, chapter one, great, second page, chapter two, great. Page three, there's a snake. And most Christians identify the snake with Satan, I think that's legitimate. And the snake tempts the, the humans, the, the God-ordained, created, vocation-ruling humans. And my question is, why is the snake there? Like, we all ask that, right? Like, that's the one thing that tempted humans away from their original vocation. Why is the snake there? And what the Bible doesn't do is answer that question. It doesn't answer it for us. And it's the same with the larger picture. You might, you might want more information on demons, what they are exactly, why they're here and where they came from, but the Bible doesn't, just doesn't give it exhaustively. The Bible is serious about dark powers, but it doesn't detail them in an exhaustive way. And here's what this means. It actually means that our major task is to discern the influence of the dark powers. And that's a reflective and slow process. It, it means that we can't point at a human and say there's a devil there or I did this bad thing and the devil made me do it. It actually means that behind the larger injustices in our world, we should engage a slow and reflective process of discernment to start to name these things. It's thinking about the kingdom of light. Let me make it really practical. The kingdom of light, in contrast to the kingdom of darkness. The kingdom of light under the rule of a good God who wants people to flourish and experience peace. It, it's, it's, it's taking that and contrasting it with the world we experience and saying, where's their dissonance? Where is their difference? Maybe that's the dark forces. So think about, let me just uh, get even more concrete here. Think about our culture's obsession with sex. Sex is a really good gift from God, designed for people to experience in covenantal relationship, to renew that covenant and give one another sacrificially to each other. But we have an overinflated interest with the human body in our society. And there's a bunch of technology, and there's a bunch of media which insulates that overinterest and perpetuates it. Pornography. Phone apps which allow a hookup culture, designed for a hookup culture, advertisements. These things are like technological architecture which slowly but surely erode any decent definition of covenantal love. Plus, think about this, the whole industry survives on the back end of sex trafficking and slavery. And we all know that. But there's something normalized about it. I'm not saying Christians are okay with it, I'm saying there's a larger culture which is, has normalized that. Think about our relentless pursuit of money and what it actually costs for people in the West to live in comfort that they do. Think about our culture's obsession with home ownership and the crippling debt that we get ourselves into just so we can have a slice of paradise. Some organizations estimate there, there, there are between 38 and 40 million slaves right now across the world. And the definitions that sort of parse out what it means to be a slave, they're debated, sure. But it's at least economic oppression for those people. 
So for a small slice of the global population to experience the luxury they do, it takes the breaking of many backs that we never experience. Or think about the mental health epidemic that's like completely washing our young people. Most young people grow up today with a phone in their pocket. Since 2007, that's been a possibility. And people think about their value and their worth and their identity and their purpose and their calling through a bunch of love heart likes that they get through an algorithm Instagram put together. And here's the question. When did that become normal? Right? When did that become normal? Not because we can say there's a demon there. It's because over time, at a large scale, without any interaction from the kingdom of God through his people, that's what's happened. Paul's answer, the dark powers are behind it. You can't point at any one human and say it's their fault. You can only sit back, look at the whole thing, and just be honest about how it's decaying God's good world. Now, I want to caution, there's always an element of uncertainty here. But what's the alternative? Particularly for the skeptics in the room, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is that we never discern the dark powers, we turn a blind eye to them, and ultimately, that we wouldn't confront them. And this is why Kiza Souza, he put it like this, it's a brilliant quote, he said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. So here's what I want to say. What Paul says about the dark powers is much more real than the secular imagination would have you believe. But it's much less fantastical than Hollywood would have you think. So what do we know? We know that they are. We know how they work. But we don't know exactly what they are. And that's okay. It means that none of us should be overly excited about them, but none of us should turn a blind eye to them. We need to remember what victory has already been won. This is my second point. On the 6th of June, 1944, 1944, the Allied forces, they landed in Normandy. And on that day, the Allied forces took the beaches of France. This was called D-Day. And for most historians of the 20th century, this was the day that the Axis powers, under the rule of Nazi Germany, were defeated, 1944. But for those history buffs in the room, you'll know that Victory Day wasn't announced until a year later. VE Day, Winston Churchill called it. 336 days later. Why? Well, because after D-Day, the Allied forces still had to fight a number of battles as they skirmished their way to the center of Berlin. D-Day was decisive enough to secure the outcome of Victory Day, but there was still work to be done. D-Day was decisive enough to secure the outcome of the victory to happen a year later, but there was still work to be done. There was still a skirmish to be had. There was still news of a new reign to be announced. And Paul argues in this passage that Christians are in a similar situation. He thinks that the death, sorry, the life, the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, it's the defeat of the dark powers the decisive defeat of the dark powers. But there's still coming a day when Jesus returns to do away with evil once and for all. In other words, and this is the language of the New Testament, Jesus made it such that the kingdom is in our midst, but it's still coming. He made it such that the kingdom of God in his person was inaugurated, but not yet realized. Or maybe more simply, it's now, but it's not yet. There's aspects of God's beautiful rule and reign 
The rain which at the end of time in Revelation 21 says God will make all things new. And J.R. Tolkien said it like this, he'll make the sad things untrue. That rain, we get, we get whispers of it now because of the decisive defeat of Jesus on the cross. And there's coming a day when he comes to restore everything, do away with all evil, make everything new. And we live between those two poles. Which means, uh, this is why Paul says the Christians stand. He uses that word four times in the next four verses. And I think it's strange language. You know, if God's made this defeat, wouldn't he say, keep fighting? Um, If God's got something for us to do, wouldn't he say, get proactive about it? Stand seems like quite a passive word. Let's unpack it for a second. He says, take your stand against the devil's schemes. Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand. Stand your ground. And after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then. Stand. Paul says stand. It seems passive, but it's actually warlike imagery. He's saying we need to hold our ground. He's saying what Jesus has done is so significant that we actually just need to hold our ground. We didn't need to advance anywhere. We certainly don't want to go back. We're holding our ground. Don't forfeit the decisive battle that's already been won. Which begs the question, it's the question I've got, what's the ground that God's already taken? Like, what is it? Is it spiritual? Is it physical? Is it me? Is it them? And the answer of the New Testament is that the ground that God's already taken is us. It's the church. That's Paul's argument throughout the whole book of Ephesians, that God has created in himself through two parties that were otherwise irreconcilable, the church of Jesus Christ. We, let me put it in these strange terms, we are conquered people under King Jesus. Jesus is our new king. When empires would conquer a foreign territory in the ancient world, what they'd do is they'd construct a monument to their victory in the center of the town. Genesis 1 borrows from this idea, and so too does this, uh, does this illustrate well what I'm trying to say. That the monument in the center of the town would symbolize the rule and reign of the foreign king, who's now their ruler. It was sort of the equivalent of what a flag would be today. The monument symbolizes the rule and reign of the king and the ethos and the way of life of the kingdom. And here's the point that Paul's making throughout the whole book of Ephesians and by this particular word, stand. He's saying that the church, by virtue of being created by King Jesus, is God's monument to the world. And it it means this, that we represent this. This represents God's rule and reign. Now, I don't know what you thought about when you were coming to church this afternoon, but I bet it wasn't this. Because when you realize the vision that God has for his people to be an in-time representation of the good world that he's coming back to restore, that should completely change the way you think about what we're doing here. When Paul's writing, he's got a vision of God on mission to defeat the dark powers. And to help God do that, Here's what he's not betting on. Take a look around at the walls. He's he's not betting on the walls of this church. When people think about church, they think it's the walls. They think it's the building. Again, other people think different things about church. They think usually it's the staff, right? It's the staff on team. That's what the church is. Paul's not betting on me. He's not betting on Michael or Calvin. He's not betting on anyone on staff, to be the means by which he represents his beautiful rule and reign to a, to a broken world. He's not betting on me. I want you to humor me for a second. 
And I want to take a seat. And I want you to look around at each other. Look at each other's faces. And I want to say that this is what God's betting on. God's coming back to make all things new. And in the meantime, it's us who represent that beautiful and good and flourishing reign of Jesus. We are God's mission in the world. So one... We need to know what the forces are. Two, what we're up against. Two, we need to understand the victory that's already been won. And three, we need to know how to participate in that mission, which is the third point, to follow the king's example. In this series, we've been asking the question, and if this is your first time with us, great to have you. We've been asking the question, how then shall we live? It's a, it's a phrase borrowed from a writer named Francis Schaeffer, 20th century. And I want to wrap up this series... And it's so awesome to be able to do so. Filling that in with no ambiguity. Many of us know the acronym WWJD. Uh, Not many of us know where it comes from. It comes from a book written in 1896. Charles Sheldon wrote it, and it's called In His Steps, with the subtitle, What Would Jesus Do? And in the late 20th century, this acronym was popularized by a youth pastor in the States when I think she printed it on bracelets for people to wear. It's like a really great reminder. It's a wonderful phrase, wonderful acronym. What would Jesus do? What a profound thought reflection, right? But it's become a bit of like a, a cute, like, guilt, Christian guilt trip to get people to do chores that we don't want them, uh, that probably don't want to do. So they use, people use it like to get people to do stuff. So, you know, Calvin, there's dishes there. Bro, what would, what would Jesus do, you know? <laughs> And obviously, Jesus would wash the dishes, right? Because well-domesticated human, and like he lived a human life, and that's probably part of his story. And Here's the thing. Asking what would Jesus do is a profoundly serious thing. And this passage shows us why. Paul writes, Put on the full armor of God, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, in addition to all this, sorry, and with, the feet, with your feet fitted with readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Now, I've been thinking about this passage for a really long time. And I've come to realize that scholars, they're divided on how to interpret it. There are two major options, and I don't think they're exclusive. I actually think they marry well together, but you'll see which one I emphasize today. Some scholars, they say that Paul is either giving individuals here a list of virtues and practices that they can use to fend off individual temptation. Others say, on the other hand, that Paul is arguing that the communal church is participating in God's defeat of evil on a cosmic level. They're the two ways to interpret this passage. So on the one hand, the imagery is either of a devil on your shoulder, and this is how we fight off their temptation, sword of the spirit, shield of faith, let's go. Or on the other hand, the imagery is that of the dark powers behind large-scale injustice, and this is how the people of God participate in their receding. I think Paul's doing both, 
but I think his major focus is the latter view. And there's a few reasons for why. It's important to say this because it is actually up for debate in a way. One, Paul is writing in the plural. Every imperative you get on that screen, it's written to multiple people. It's not to the singular. So Paul's not saying, you're an individual, here's how you do it. He's saying, you're the church. You're made up of a body of people. Here's how you do it together. It's in the plural. Second, Paul is seeking to combat large-scale injustice and evil, not small-scale temptation in this passage. His main argument through the letter is that the church, as a community, is God's witness to the evil powers. He said that in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. And finally, and this sort of seals it for me, and you really have to bear with me here, it's a bit more complex than I'd love it to be, but Paul here, he's borrowing language from the prophet Isaiah. And that language is complex, it's rhetorical, and it's interesting. Um, We'll go to that to the screen now. Throughout the book of Isaiah, the writer develops this image of a divine warrior king promised by God to come and fight evil. This warrior, he's got all this sort of clothing, all these garments. They're, they're garments fit for a divine warrior king. And when he comes, he's going to do something so that the animating forces behind evil in this world, they'll be destroyed. The divine beings that defend injustice in Psalm 82, they've got an expiry date, according to Isaiah. And Christians, we stake our life on the claim that Jesus of Nazareth is that divine warrior king. But he defeated the powers not through violence, but through sacrifice. He defeated the powers and overcame death, not by holding on to life, but by giving up his life. He disarmed the weapons of the dark powers by cancelling our debt before God, so they have no claim against us. In other words, Jesus is the one who wore the garments foretold by Isaiah. The garments weren't literal. They weren't even metaphorical. What they were was unimportant. What mattered is the calling that the garments symbolized. So when Paul lists these items, he's not wanting us to focus on the individual things. He's wanting his readers to focus on the type of person you need to be to wear this armor. Let me put it to you like this. Imagine you've, you've walked into a room, you're a common person, and you know that you, the city you're a part of is at war. And on the bed, you see a bunch of garments, items like this laid out, breastplate, and, you know, maybe it's called the breastplate of fire. And then you see like a belt, it's called the belt of water, and you walk in and someone says, put, put the warrior clothes on. Your first thought isn't to sit there and think about, what's this, what's this breastplate do? What's its secret power? Your second thought isn't to think, what's this belt do? What's its secret power? Your, your first thought is, I'm not a warrior. That's not my vocation. I'm just a common person. And when Paul does this, he's arguing that the armor symbolizes the calling that the church has been given. Paul's point is that there is a dark power behind the evil in this world, and God has shown us how to fight it in Jesus. He showed us in his life. The longed-for divine warrior king of Isaiah took on flesh in Jesus of Nazareth. In a complex rhetorical way, Paul is saying, basically, imitate Jesus. Follow Jesus. And P.S., here's why it's significant, because it makes the powers quake. That's Paul's argument. It's complex, not because Paul's a bad writer, it's just because we're not Jews and we didn't grow up on Israel's scriptures, right? What Jesus did to the powers in his life, this is the major point, he's now continuing to do through the church. WWJD, 
is the most cosmically significant question you could ask. It's not a nice thought. It's not a Christianized guilt trip. It's spiritual warfare. It's spiritual warfare. One scholar, he put it like this. He said, our warfare then, it involves purposefully growing into communities that become more faithful corporate performances of Jesus on earth. What a beautiful vision for what this is. More faithful corporate performances of Jesus on earth. My friend Dan Patterson, in his latest book, Questioning Christianity, he helps us think about why the life of Jesus and imitating him is good news. Let me read some of his words. He said, Everywhere he went, Jesus preached about the coming kingdom of God and how to live now as though God had once again become king. To a world divided by rampant tribalism, Jesus said to love our enemies and pray for our persecutors. To a culture full of hypocritical performers, Jesus said we should humbly seek God in secret. To a people who sought earthly power and position, Jesus said that true greatness means not to be, not to be served but to serve, stooping down to embrace the humblest station. He taught that humans should steer from violence, flee from temptation, and give without measure. When Jesus spoke, his words carried an inscrutable wisdom, an unparalleled authority, such that his critics were silenced and the crowds were awestruck. Bear with me. Jesus' sublime teaching was matched only by the singular caliber of his life. He put flesh on his words, living his whole existence as one continuous sermon. Each encounter recorded in the Gospels serves as a muse to imagine how different the world would be if we followed God's wisdom and were animated by God's presence. To the bewilderment of the elite and the establishment, Jesus flipped the social ladder by embracing the ostracized, marginalized, and forgotten. He validated the voices and vocation of women and dignified children by holding them up as examples. With a moral genius never before seen, somehow the holiest man who ever lived, without giving an inch toward evil, became a magnet for criminals sinners and outcasts. Anyone who'd been written off as a damaged good or not eligible for social standing seemed a prime candidate for Jesus's motley crew of disciples. And here's what I want to say. Imagine a community of people doing that, being that kind of person to a broken world. That's our spiritual battle. That's what Paul's asking us to do. So here's the question. How then should we live? This is why I took this role here. The vision of this church is something that I can wake up for every day. More people, more like Jesus. And Paul is saying that if we step into that vocation as a community of people, that that's going to be good news for the world. It's going to bring glory to God, and it's going to be joy for us. Because God's kingdom of light, where humans flourish, where we take ground against the darkness, not against people, because we don't have a vocabulary where humans are our enemies, but against the dark forces of evil in this world, with costly love and sacrifice, That's our spiritual warfare, and that's how we participate in God's mission to the world. So what does this mean? And I just want to invite the band back up as I ask this question. What does this mean? Well, the question this entire passage raises, particularly given the imagery it uses, it's a question of allegiance. If Jesus is king and the way of his kingdom is the cross... It's a question of allegiance. In other words, it's a question of who do you serve? And the Bible just assumes that we all serve someone. We all serve something. It might be an idea, might be an ideology, might be someone you're obsessed with, might be anything. But we all serve something. We all give our allegiance over to something. And so as I close, I just want to ask you who do you serve today? Who do you serve? Jesus is the only king I know who welcomes sinners. 
Jesus is the only king I know who doesn't just forgive their debt, but gives, gives them a new life. Turns them around, new heart, new start, fresh into the world to be a blessing. Jesus is the only king I think who's worth giving his allegiance to. And so as we round out this series and we talk about how doing what Jesus did, sacrificial love, humility, all those things, I want to raise this question to you. And so I just want to invite you to close your eyes, everyone in this room. And I want to invite those, maybe you've never given your allegiance to Jesus. Maybe you've never said, sorry for the way that I've lived my life. Sorry for being allegiant to anything and everything other than you. And I want to invite you now to do what the Bible calls repentance, to turn away and to step in line with the King, both the King of our hearts as Christians, but also to the King of the cosmos, ruling and reigning. And so if that's you, if you want to give your allegiance to Jesus for the first time, maybe not even knowing all the facts, what does this look like, how do I do it, we'll work that out. But if you want to give your allegiance to Jesus for the first time, I just want to invite you to stand, wherever you are, please stand. If you've never been the knee to Jesus, if you've never come home to the Father who loves you, if you've never met the King, the only one I know who welcomes sinners, I want to invite you just to stand. So if that's you, please stand now. And if you're a Christian, I just want to ask you, take an audit of your allegiance to Jesus. Jesus' way is the way of the cross. Self-sacrifice, self-denial, love for the sake of the world. So I want to ask you, how's that going? And do you need a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit to pour out in you, to make you more like Him? If that's you, I want to ask you to stand. If you need a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit to pour into your life, If you want to respond and say, Jesus, I want to bend the knee by standing now, recognizing that I need you. Because self-sacrifice, that's a high call. I can't do it on my own. Thank you for those that are standing so far. I want to just open up another minute for those that want to respond in this way. A few more people are standing. Thank you, everyone. Last little opportunity. I'll pray for all of us, but I'll particularly pray for those that are standing. Jesus is calling, and he's calling you to his way for the sake of the world and his glory. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we lament the brokenness of this world, and we recognize that it's not simple enough to say that there's a few naughty individuals. It's not simple enough to say that institutions are corrupt. There's something else going on, and we just recognize that, God. And we just say, come, come soon, Jesus. Come soon to renew all things. And in the meantime, Lord, I want to lift up my brothers and sisters standing right now before you and pray, Lord, that you would make us faithful witnesses to King Jesus, that we would embody in our person the sacrificial love, the humility, the service, the self-denial, all the things that make up the life of the King we serve. I pray that you'd work them into our bones and out through us into the world. And so, Father, I pray, pour out your Holy Spirit now. Pour it out in this church. Would this be the battle that we fight? Fighting against who we are and who we're not to become more like the King who calls us to self-sacrifice. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray, come. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.